I hope everyone was enjoying the beautiful late afternoon, early evening light and beautiful balance of warmth and coolness. How many folks in the room were outside before the talk, just taking it in? Great. So the the name of this uh, retreat is The Art of Mindful Living. So you probably were just doing a little bit of that, just very naturally. I'd like to give some instructions on listening to a talk. It's different than a lecture where we try to absorb information, make sense of it, and maybe take notes, etc. If you can keep the spirit of your practice alive in, that, in this relational form of listening, but staying attentive to yourself, and in a way letting the, the words and the energies that they evoke wash through you, rather than trying to process them while it's going on, then you might find that there's a whole different quality to the experience. It's actually a powerful practice, relational practice for daily life as well. But we can practice it right here. And one thing that I've noticed in my own practice over the years is that if I don't cling so much to the words, but I let them wash through, often later on, there might just be one or two things that were said that just rise up and really inform my practice. And for me, that's actually, that's what's useful in a Dharma talk. If something, if there could be something that just turns, turns the practice a little bit, then it serves the purpose of moving the retreat along, which is what uh, the talks are for. So I'd like to begin this evening um, with a couple of stories. And the first is a story of a uh, stone carver. I heard it many years ago. And it was a story of a man who was, he was a stone carver and he's on the side of a, a great mountain chipping away at the rock. And he wasn't very happy with his life. He didn't feel like he had much power. And, but this is a magical story. So he looked up at the sky and he saw the vastness of the sky and he thought, oh, if I could only be the sky that much power, that much grace, then I would be happy. And as if by magic, he became the sky. And he hung out in the sky and he was happy there for a while as the sky. And then he noticed the sun that illuminated the sky. So he started getting interested in the sun. Huh, that's more powerful than the sky. Let me become the sun. And once again, as if by magic, he became the sun. And again, he was happy for a time. The sun could look clearly and because of its light, could see all the details of the earth, all the details of life. But then one day he noticed that he was trying to look very finely at a part of the earth and he couldn't see anything because there were big clouds, low, dark clouds rolling on the earth. And he got jealous and he thought, oh, The clouds are more powerful than the sun. They can block its rays. So once again, as if by magic, he became the cloud and was happy for a time, meandering freely. But then all of a sudden, his passage was stopped by this great looming feature, this mountain. And he looked down at the mountain and he heard this tick, tick, tick. And he saw himself as the stone carver working away on the side of the mountain. Do you know the end of the story? (laughs) He went back to being himself in his humble little life, but in a very transformed way. He'd gone on all these journeys with his mind, but he'd realized that that's where his real power was, this relationship with this this great mountain that he was working with. So he had done something that we often have to do, and I'll be exploring it tonight, is we, he turned what in his mind was a bad situation, a limited one, into a good one. My second story to begin is, uh, it's a personal one. And when I was a, a kid, um, when I was qu- quite young, 
uh, well, about six, my parents got divorced and I stayed with my dad and I was kind of, I had been the youngest of three boys and then my dad got a stepmom and I had two younger siblings and I was in the middle and there wasn't a lot of time, right, for me. You know how, we had family of seven. So I got grumpy because I didn't get as much attention as I wanted. So, uh, and I had a lot of energy. And so what my dad did is he would stick me in this black uh, leather chair in the corner of our television room. And he would say, he'd tell me to calm me down. And he'd say, you go sit in that chair and you be quiet until you can come out and be nice. So it was my funk chair. So I used to go in my funk chair, but there I learned something very valuable. I learned uh, to turn a bad situation into a good one. What I learned quite naturally is how to calm my mind, how to sit there with my eyes closed and how to go inside and get peaceful. I didn't know anything about meditation at the time. It was before it was kind of hot and they were teaching it to young people. (laughs) Um, But it had a couple benefits. The first was that when I came out, and I would, I would spend some time there and I kind of got good at it and I come out and I was a nicer person to be with. So it actually was beneficial for my family. And the second thing I learned, which was very important and maybe a little portent of um, the passion that I've had for meditation, was that I realized that I had a resource inside myself that I, I didn't know that I had. And if I was not put in a situation where I couldn't just run amok, where I couldn't just follow my impulses, I wouldn't have discovered it. So it's a little bit like being on retreat, right? <laughs> So tonight I'd like to talk about how the Buddha described how we suffer and what is potentially unnecessary in our suffering and the path on how to get free. So just since the first full day, finishing the first full day of the retreat, an overview of what we're doing on this retreat. And I want to give some attitudes and strategies that can help us on our journey. And uh, not just here, but our journey in general of the art of mindful living in the daily life of a retreat and off. The Buddha has said, it is said that he taught one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Now, in a certain way, he, he was, because of this, he was a master of turning, because suffering isn't usually a good situation, right? Of turning what seems like a bad situation, constricted situation, into one that actually transforms our experience. So he was considered a master of turning a bad situation into a good one in his path. Let me just pause for a minute, and we explored this a little last night, but just ask ourselves why we're here. And it might be the adventure of it. How many folks are kind of that way? You feel like you're, well, you don't have to raise your hands. You can stay in your listening space. It's okay, sorry. <laughs> so part of it can be the adventure, the, you know, you've, you've, you feel like it's gonna, it, it, it's just a positive energy that brought you here, right? For others, and probably realistically for almost everybody, if we really look deep enough, then it's because we, had, we have some stress. Something that we're doing wasn't quite, quite working well enough. And I know for myself, when I started doing meditation intensively, I actually was, uh, I studied economics in college and I, was, I, I worked overseas for a while. And, and then when I was in a year overseas, I, I started, uh, I found this people doing a meditation and yoga. And I actually, uh, that's when I shifted gears. I came back and finished college, finished my degree, but I I became a yoga teacher. This was back in the the mid-80s. And then forever when people, people have asked me many times why I became, why I got on this path of meditation. Why did you do it? And I kept telling people, well, I studied economics and I wanted to help the world, but then I realized you could do it from the inside out as well. And everyone's like, oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) But just a few days ago, I was thinking to myself, is that really why you start? Is that really why you shifted paths? 
And I reflected back and I was stressed out. I couldn't handle the like econometrics and all the like the pressure from my boss. And there was a part of me that was just like, it wasn't working. And all these times telling myself this story, sure, that's true too, it's nice. But I came, to, I came to the path because something radically wasn't working, right? And even before that, I'd been, um, I'd been in a fraternity, fraternity of college and my nickname was Chug King. Uh, this is not in my prepared notes, maybe I shouldn't tell it. <laughs> and um, my, dad was a prof- my, my, my dad was a professor at Dartmouth and as a, as a fraternity kid, I mean, as a, as a faculty kid, we got to go to the frats and everything when we were in high school. And, and so I was at college in Boston. I went to Tufts. And then I was coming home for a weekend, and I was at a party at a frat, and I chugged a whole beer. Uh, and I, I passed out, and I fell off a little porch. And um, I, woke, I, knocked, I got knocked out, and I woke up. And this thought just came in my head. I quit. And I quit everything. I quit the fraternity. I took a year. That's when I went that's when I went and discovered yoga and meditation and everything. But something radically wasn't working, and I knew I had to try something. And I was at a good age, so many of you are fairly young too, so you're trying new things. But it was, it's, when we're honest, often if we take a hard look, and it's not easy to do that, we realize what turns us on the path is something in the heart that we're just not, we're just not relating well. There's something that's not working. Now, whatever your motivation is to come here, and I'm, I have a lot of delusion because it took me 20 years to actually realize I came because I was stressed out. Um, it doesn't really matter. There's a teacher, Ajahn Jamnian from, from Thailand. He used to have all these, he, he, I guess he was very handsome. and all these wonderful magnetic powers and all these young women would come to his retreats, giant retreats. And someone asked him, Does it ma- like, are, you, are you concerned that these people came for the wrong reason? Like maybe they're in love with you or something? And he said, no, it makes no difference why anyone comes in. As long as when they come, they actually wholeheartedly do the practice. And I thought that was very wonderful because here we are, the end of our first full day, and our job is very, very simple. Just to, just to give ourselves over to what we're doing here. From my side, and I think all of, this side, all of our teachers' side, we assume that you, carry about, you care about the quality of your life, of your living. And that's what we're here to work on. The, how we actually bring ourselves into the act of living and the art of living. So the art of mindful living. So let's take a deeper look at what the Buddha meant by suffering. And first, um, we'll look at just what normal human suffering from a classical perspective is. And we suffer when we don't get what we want, when we get stuck with what we don't want. Uh, When in the process of birth, they're suffering, mother and the child, it's not pleasant. We get old, is that pleasant? Suffering inherent in that. When we get sick, there's suffering inherent in that. And even though none of us, unless you're one of these people that has written one of these great come back from the dead stories, uh, we suffer when we die. So these are inherent qualities of, of just what, it's part of what are called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in life. It's just what makes up life. These are just human things that make up life that are suffering. There's another level of suffering, which is purely our inner relationship to experience, which is a little different, okay? And uh, the term for suffering that the Buddha described is called dukkha. Constriction, the normal one is unsatisfactoriness or suffering. There's one definition that I like, which is a a more literal um, translation of of the word dukkha, which is a wheel out of kilter. So it's like it's our inner wheel of our heart and our minds. It's not rolling properly with the conditions of our life, right? So our life, it's a bumpy, it's a bumpy ride. And when we look at, when we look at this level, then our happiness and our suffering, it's not so much about having 
uh, a rough road or a smooth one to ride on. It's not, and that's what we often do. That's what we equate, right? A life without suffering is a smooth road. But there's the suffering of the poor and the rich and the old and the young. There's, there's inherent in any part we have joy and sorrow, right? Suffering and happiness. So the Buddha taught, he taught the middle way, which was to not to get caught in extremes. Um, sometimes this path that we're on here, places like IMS is called the upper middle way. Because most of us are, um, are quite used to our comforts. So one thing you want to watch, it, actually it's not easy. You can get into what's called spa mind on retreat. If you keep the schedule, you really can't, I don't think. But where you're just kind of, it's pleasant, it's beautiful, right? It's quiet and we kind of get into, we just kind of incline ourselves into what's the easiest. Verse, which is a little different than enjoying, than being really open to, but, but not getting in this easy mind. So, so uh, this is the middle way, um, the way of staying present and not getting caught in extremes. And so uh, when, whether we have a rocky path we're on or whether our life is very smooth, the conditions are very good, um, this is a quote from uh, Shantideva. How, what's the best way to work with the conditions that we have in our life? Right? And this is talking about how to protect ourselves. And he said, where would I, Shantideva was a, a, a great Indian, um, great Indian master, Buddhist master. He says, where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth so that when we're walking along, it's smooth, okay? Our feet don't hurt. But just leather on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the entire earth with it. So this is really pointing to our inner relationship to experience. That that's, and it's, the metaphor is not perfect because we're not trying to, it's not, we're not trying to get leathery and tough. But we're actually working with a heart that isn't leathery and tough, that isn't resistant, a heart that is open, a mind that is free and can let things flow. So we can, the wheel of our life can move more smoothly. One of my favorite teachings of the Buddha is called the two darts teaching, which is in life stuff happens to us and we get hit by a dart. Feel like we get hit by a dart sometimes? Yeah, Yeah, many times. Uh, And then the second arrow is not the dart. It's not the thing that doesn't quite go right or that really some clear suffering. But the second arrow is what we do with what life does to us. And so the first arrow is unavoidable, okay? So that's sort of saying there will be bumps in the road. But the second arrow, it is said, is avoidable. And often we don't shoot ourselves once, but we shoot ourselves many, many, many times, all right? Something, we have a loss, something doesn't go our way, someone does something we don't like. Do we just go over it once and feel the pain of it once, or do we get... We go over it again and again and again. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually work to work skillfully with removing the first arrow and healing versus keep shooting ourselves with all the extra arrows and suffering more. So this is what's called unnecessary suffering. And this is what the Buddha taught, that we can actually work with this. We can get to know the energies that, that cause this inner, the wheel of our heart and our minds to work in a way that is reactive, that is compulsive, that is negative, that ca- causes this whole extra layer on top of the joys and the sorrows of life. These are inner habit energies we have that we react with. And classically, they're framed around three different energies, which I'm going to spend some time exploring. One is the mind that, uh, that wants. Often they're called, uh, there's the wanting mind, there's the not wanting mind, and then there's the, I'm going to pull the wool over my eyes or the not seeing clearly 
mind and heart. And mind and heart, just traditionally for language sake, it, the word is chitta in the ancient Buddhist language. And, uh, and that, that includes mind and heart. So it includes thoughts and emotions. So it's this whole cluster, okay? So let's investigate these, um, just these energies one by one and then see how they work together in a, a myriad of forms. So, and there's good and bad, there's positive and negative. So wanting. Sometimes wanting's very good and even uh, Ajahn Mahaboa, Thai master, said that he has a wonderful teaching. It says the, the desire to end all desire and that's the desire, that's, that's, that's the passion for the path. That's, that's the urge, that's the movement towards, towards freedom. And there's, I like it because there's a dynamic energy in it. Right? It's not like when we look at desire it's, and we think, oh, we have to be flat. <laughs> right? it's, not, it's not quite this simple at all. So there's ways of using the energy that can be very positive in ways that aren't so much. And obviously when we want something, especially if it's in the context of taking care of ourselves and others, and we work toward it, it can bring a lot of benefit, right? So there's really, really powerful energy in that. But uh, many times just the energy of wanting itself and the acquisition that goes with that, maybe uh, not so skillful in terms of our hearts, in terms of freeing our hearts. So uh, for those of us who have nested, if you look in your attics or your basements, you might notice there, there's some extra things there that were a product of wanting. And they, they, they I mean, sometimes they might be useful, they just got old or something, but often there's a want and then it's satisfied, but then it can be a really good reflection. Um, where does the wanting mind go once we've satisfied it with, uh, with an object of desire? Is it replaced by another desire? Or when the object changes or we change, does, it, does the wanting come again? And what are the consequences for the quality of our living of just this, this wanting, this, this craving, this desire? There's a, a fairly recent president um, who uh, was famously said that uh, one of the ways, great ways to fix America would be if everybody just uh, did a lot more shopping, bought a lot more. And in a certain way, yes, on a certain outer level, you create supply and demand. But if you look at the quality of our hearts, maybe not so much. We have to look at that, okay? Uh, Han Shan, who is an ancient Chinese master, uh, paraphrased from him, he said, we live our lives like ants trapped in a sugar bowl. And all of our lives long, we go running around the sugar bowl, right? Craving and tasting more and more sugar. And we never take the time to go and find out what's on the outside of the bowl. And then the last part of the poem is like, and alas, we have grown old. So it's like we get transfixed in this very limited space. We don't even take the time and that's what we're doing here, isn't it? We're taking the time in a way to see if there's something on the outside of those energies. So the next one to explore is not wanting. Not wanting on a, in a certain way cannot, can be very powerful. It can be a pow powerful positive energy for wanting change. There's something that's really off in ourselves or others, we don't, we don't like it. But we see there's some wisdom in there. And it's interesting because often uh, on the path of awakening, people that have more aversion, called aversive types, they suffer a lot more sometimes because we all know, don't we, that the, the sting of, that it can be powerful and sweet at first when we're angry and we use that, but that often it's very painful afterwards. Right? for ourselves and the quality of our relationships. It can be external, it can go internal too. Uh, depression is a form of, of aversion. It's an opposition, the pushing away. And we take it internally instead of externally. So we can shut down. Um, so that energy can be 
can be very harmful. But in terms of wisdom, just so for those of us who have that affliction, it can be useful. Often aversive types are the ones that break through the most quickly because they, when aversion and wisdom are strong, you, maybe you know some people like this. <laughs> they can see really clearly into things, but they're not so nice about it. <laughs> so somehow those energies sometimes go together. <laughs> and it's actually said to counterbalance the aversive type you often do. And, and uh, um, uh, this will be talked more about later in the retreat. Um, you cultivate love, okay, to soften the heart. The last of these is not seeing clearly. And in a way, on a very deep level, everything's changing. We've already, you see that. If you appreciate beauty, you appreciate the change of something. You appreciate the nuance, the expressions, the change of life, the change of a breath. But we don't like change when it changes in a way we don't like or our bodies change, or we lose some mental power, things like that. And so we're at war with, often with change, and we don't want to see it. We have a fixation with permanence in a certain way. It's incredible. Like in relationships, we get a fixation. We think they will not change. Is it true? So Ajahn Chah, who was a great Thai master, um, said that, there's only one ruler in the universe and it's change. And this ruler, this empress call her, uh, she's trying to teach us all the time. She's trying to give us the greatest gift of freedom, but we don't want to listen. So when we see, we don't tune in to cause and effect. We don't tune into change. We don't work with it. That's one level of not seeing. It can be good, it can be good, you know, it can be helpful to ignore things a little bit, but maybe not longer term. There's one classical example that's given of just practically when we misperceive, it's another level you just don't see things as they are, you just misperceive, where uh, someone is walking along a path when it's getting at dusk and they have a, there's a snake or a rope. And if they see, if it's a snake, then they better avoid it, right? So at least in, in Asia, and I've done a lot of training there, there's, like in Thailand, they had posters up of like a hundred kinds of poisonous snakes. So it's not a small thing. If you see it, if, and, and, the, and you don't see, you're not sure what it is. If you, think it's a, if you think it's a snake, and then you get afraid, right? And you avoid it. But if it's a, if it's a snake, if, if, it's, if it's actually just a rope, or stick and you think it's a snake, then that's unnecessary suffering because you're not, you're going into this whole fear-based reaction. And we know that in our life, right? We impose because of our past histories on something or the fear-based reaction. And it's the actual, it's not actually accurate for the situation. Now, on the other hand, if it was, if we think it's just a rope or a stick and it's a snake, it's dangerous. So often we don't see things that are dangerous and they are and we get hurt physically, emotionally, mentally. So not seeing is the third of these energies. And it's said, and they, they work together. So this is like the cluster at our hearts that keeps, keeps us reactive and trapped in a certain way. Um, and it's said that in a way that God, the, the Godfather of all these, if you know, well, I, you, got some, you have a lot of young people here, so maybe you, didn't, you haven't seen the Godfather movies. Okay, maybe they're classics, okay. So the, the godfather of all of these is ignorance. And then the, what are they, lieutenants? The lieutenants are greed and aversion. And they all work together. So they're, they're, there's a, they're, they're keeping us in suffering, okay? Now, it's very simple. So they work together as a team often, sometimes more alone, of how this functions. So let's say we... <coughs> Um, we're sitting and, uh, I don't know, we're watching TV and all of a sudden we feel a little lonely and we don't really observe it and then we get uncomfortable in our seat and we, all of a sudden we realize that we're at, at the fridge and we've gotten a pint of ice cream and ate, eaten half of it, okay? So that's an indication of all, that's indication of all three of these working together probably. 
So one, uh, we had an aversive response. We had an unpleasant, we had something that arose and we, we didn't see it clearly, right? So, and by seeing clearly, when we, have, when we see clearly, it actually creates space. It gives, and that's a lot we're teaching. You, when you see something and you have the spaciousness of awareness and the clarity, then it can be as it is, but we're not fighting it. Okay? So we don't see it. We don't like it. So what happens? We, push it, we want to push it away, right? So how do we push it away is, what do we do when we're uncomfortable? When we're, we often go the other way and we crave something that's pleasant to mask the pain because we didn't have a skillful relationship with it in the first place. So then we go for something pleasant. We go for the ice cream, which is fine. Ice cream's great, but we can form a habit pattern. <laughs> and it's interesting, you might've, that's, that's an external example um, with food, but you might've, those of you who have not worked with your cell phones at all, you might've already experienced that. Your mind just went there when, just when you were feeling unpleasant or something. It wasn't something had to be done. I don't know. It's happened to me. <laughs> so there's a kind of, there can be, an, I call it escape therapy. <laughs> when these work together, right? We don't see something. We want to escape it. So it's pushing away and then we go for something. So it all works together. Interesting, isn't it? So now I want to uh, look again at these energies, but from a little more, uh, even a little more internal place. Um, and just how these, how different energies that are sort of coalesces, different qualities of these function and probably have been functioning even in our practice here as different things that, that um, we can work with that block our practice in a way. So one is is ideals. So ideals are great because they give us energy, right? And so even our, some of our motivation for being here, we want to become better. We want to we like become a, a, a more free person, a more responsive person, a more heartful person. And we've read, there's lots of great literature on what medica- meditation can do for you. Medication too, but that's different. <laughs> <laughs> And so we might have, I've learned, I just read this great book. What was it? It's called uh, 10% Happier recently, which is, it's really, it's, it's a fun read actually. I recommend it. Um, where I was reading, I was like, oh my gosh, my gray matter can get thicker. If I just watch my breath, I must have the grayest, the, the thickest gray matter on the planet, but I don't feel any smarter. Uh, so it's like, you can get excited about the ideas and actually you can feel it too, but the ideas of what meditation can do. And so it can be an ideal that we feel like we want it. We want to grow into this. And so we, we come from that place. Or we want to change the world. We, want, we, want, we have an ideal for a, a harmonious planet. We're in better tune with the environment, with our families, etc. And so we work towards these goals. So ideals are great. They're great energies, but we don't want to be used by them. And the problem is that they get in the way. We have an ideal, but then they actually get in the way of living. They give us energy to do something, but we have to, if we, if we hold on to the ideal, the image, then what happens? Well, one, one way that we suffer is that we, we create an expectation, right? That we're going to meet that ideal. And uh, my father, who I mentioned earlier, was a very successful guy. He, he, always told his, he always told all of us, he said, the key to happiness is having a low level of expectation. So in a certain way, there was some wisdom in that. In a certain way, he was saying, look, right, if you get caught in the ideals and the expectations, then you, you're going to suffer, right? Which is interesting, because I actually think for myself and for when you really just do your thing and you do it well and you put your full care and energy into it, it has its own results and it's very different. We can use the energy of expectation to push us to a certain way, right? But we get caught in it and then we live through it. And so a low level expectation, huh? I was like, okay, that's good. Well, it could be good. Um, but I think the Buddha went a little further. I think the Buddha would say that uh, at a deeper wisdom level, that happiness is found in a level with 
uh, no level of expectation, right? It's not a low level, it's no level. To put it more practically, and this is a clear teaching, expectation equals suffering. So test it. It doesn't mean you use the, you don't, it doesn't mean you don't get, right? It doesn't mean you use the energy or something that's positive. But see if when you live in the expectation, whether there's actually suffering in it. Okay? Comparing mind, another way this works, is, and in expectation there's often a lot of, there's a, um, a lot of wanting, there can be delusion as well as, right, the positive energies. So comparing mind can be a good motivator, and it's actually interesting, and we think we don't want to compare, but in the early suttas, there's, there's monks and nuns that push themselves because they saw other people working hard. <laughs> and they're like, oh, if they can do it, then I, I should be able to do it. Uh, so that's kind of the group, that's the positive part of the group energy sometimes, is that, is that we're held, we're held in the fact that we're in it together and we don't, in a certain way we are comparing, aren't we? Right, like we're trying to bring ourselves up a little bit through comparison. But generally, uh, it doesn't help too much. Doesn't it split us off from our experience when we're comparing ourselves? Doesn't it take us away from the moment? So does the complaining mind, right? Complaining is another form of aversion, isn't it? There was, a, there was a New Yorker cartoon once where they had, like, it was for meditators, and they had, like, bubbles over everyone's head, and they showed it, and everyone was, like, complaining, and they're like, that person's this and that. It'd be very embarrassing if we had those, wouldn't it be? <laughs> uh, my favorite one of these is, um, is looking at this split between should be versus is. And you've exper- you probably experienced this. I, I, I should be a better meditator, right? I've been here a whole day. I should be enlightened by now. <laughs> or that person next to me, shouldn't, they shouldn't make any noise when they're breathing. Or uh, that person shouldn't walk so slowly when they're going through doorways. Don't they know the harmony of the, maybe none of you are doing that. They shouldn't walk so fast, right? So our mind... Our mind is living through this so much of the time. And there's a lot of energy in it. There's a lot of energy. Just think how our relationships would be so much better. There's, a, there's an adage, don't shoot on me and I won't shoot on you. <laughs> if we could actually live that, Think how much more freedom there would be. But we're not wired that way, are we? It just doesn't appear that we are. And there's a huge amount of energy trapped. Just looking, you look at it again and again, should be versus is. There's suffering in that. There's constriction. There's energy that's hearts are tight. Okay. And of course we have the judging commentator. Everybody have that going on? So this one, if you meditate, it might be a little heavy on your first retreat, but if you keep meditating, it kind of just becomes like, okay. Just kinda, it becomes more a part of the mind unless you get into war with it. So I had this one retreat. It might have been here on a three-month retreat or a longer retreat. I think it was. When I was sitting, and then I, I, my practice was going along, and then I had all of a sudden one day this whole committee of, of Tibetan monks all popped up in my head. And they were looking down on me and they just started commenting on my practice constantly. Oh, he's pretty good at mindfulness. Are you kidding me? No, he's not. He's not. He should be much more advanced at this point in his practice. And they just were going on and on and on. There's, const- there's a T called constant comment. It was just like, and I just, I just started laughing at him. It's like, okay, guys, you do your thing. I'm going to do mine. <laughs> Hopefully we can get along. <laughs> So to hold, to hold the energy, the, any of these energies and our thoughts, our thought energies lightly, um, it's, it's actually a high art of practice, okay? But it's one in a way that's, that's very, when we can start to any of these energies, we can start to see them functioning. And it's like, this is what the mind and the heart does. These, these are these energies, all these different coalesced energies that are functioning. They just keep doing their thing. But if we learn to actually 
situate ourselves, and that's what we're doing more in being present, then slowly, and actually uh, Joseph, one of the founders here, when I was working with him on one retreat, I just remember an interview and he just said, the whole practice is having a, a different energetic relationship with experience, that we, our awareness becomes bigger. And so these might be going on, but then they don't catch us. So these inner energies, that they coalesce of greed, of wanting, not wanting, that they, they, the power for them to control the mind, it, it gets less, okay? That's the ideal at least, but guess what? I just gave you another way to suffer. And that's what meditation does too. Because we give you, we're telling you all this information about, oh, you can, you can experience this, and then you'll set it up. See, the mind's just going to do it. It's shameless. It doesn't care. And then if you start to get good at, at meditation, then your mind will start commenting on that, and it'll, it'll, it'll procreate that, and it'll create something fixed around that. So just knowing this is the nature of the mind. This is what it, this is what it does. But these energies... Um, when they take over, they run the show on this inner level. Our life does, the wheel is out of kilter. And the real bad news is that it's like we're, we're all in our own little way control freaks, would you say? <laughs> um, and we find out as we sit here that we can't, like we know we can't sort of police the waterfront, you know that movie? on the waterfront. We can't take care of the outside. It's so much. We try. But we can't, even we can't even take care of our own thoughts. We can't even control them. So when we look at our minds, it's bad news, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it good news? In a certain it seems like it's bad news because these energies are running amok in all these variations of forms. But we have to just make a little shift. So we're practicing self-knowledge here, right? When we start to watch our minds and how they're working in hearts. So self-knowledge is bad news. Sorry. Until it isn't. <laughs> and there's a shift that happens. There's actually a bumper sticker. It says, shift happens. <laughs> I thought I thought of it at first, and my brother was going to, he said, well, let's franchise it or something. You don't make a lot of money being a Dharma teacher, right? So might as well make some money. And I saw, and then like a week later, I saw one driving down the road. Someone had the idea. It's like, all right, I'll stick to meditation. <laughs> so shift happens. And actually the first, when we start to see the way the mind works, it's actually seeing how we suffer. It's the beginning of the path, right? So the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. So it's, it's delineated in a much more thorough way in the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, its cause of craving and clinging, these energies we just spoke of, right? There's the possibility of freedom and then there's the path. I'm just doing it in a little short, shorthand. Um, but you, when you see it, that's actually the start of the path. In a Tibetan tradition, there's the, the, the first insight that we have is when you see the nature of the mind like a cascading waterfall with all these energies and thoughts that just keep doing, keep moving. And we were really deluded to think we could control them, right? So that's an insight. It's actually good news. How come you're not smiling? It is. Because it's not easy, is it? Right? We can't seem to keep experience, when we get on the path, we can't seem to let it be itself, can we? We can't seem to let be, right? Let be and let go. It's hard for us to give ourselves and others space to just be as we and they are. And when we bargain with life, which we try to do, we realize that life isn't bargaining back. Life insists on being exactly the way it is. You noticed? And it keeps insisting on being that way, this way. 
So the good news, we make the shift, is that in a way what we need is right here. Well, there's a story of a thief uh, that a husband and wife team that they'd go out every day and they'd go out looking, they this little plot of land, a little house and a little plot of land and they'd go out every day trying to thieve to get money. They worked really hard and didn't get too much. And they didn't know that in their backyard was a buried treasure. So when we get caught in these energies, that's what we're doing. And it's not our backyard, it's much closer than that. It's in our hearts and our minds. It's in the, the actual relationship with the experience that we have. The actual way that our hearts and minds are being and moving in relation to the world. So the basic strategy to come out from all of these energies is just to turn to what is. And to relax into what is. And to do it again and again. And that's what we've been practicing. But it's hard. The Buddha's path is said to be going against the stream. Not buying into, not biting the hook of these different energies as they go by. When I was in high school, in my senior yearbook, I had a, like a gawky picture of me with kind of long hair and, you know, typical. Um, and, and along with this, I had a Taoist, a Taoist quote, which said, uh, how will life take its course if you will not let it flow? And this has everything to do with being aligned with and learning to move skillfully with things the way they are and not as I've been describing, our mental and emotional overlays on top of them. And you might think, when we start to get in this go with the flow, you might think it's passive, right? Just, just being with the flow of experience, or even defeatist. But it's not. When we start by seeing clearly then all of the energies, our dynamic energies of our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our memories, our future anticipations, etc., they can all help us in making decisions when used skillfully but when these energies are prejudicing, like their mental habit energies, then they actually change they change our like glasses that we put on so that we're overlaying, right? So we can't see experience as it is. So we turn to come underneath and we start to align ourselves with awareness again and again in the present with things as they are. And we gain a momentum in this. It's absolutely simple and radical. And the glasses become clearer. Anyone ever watched the, used to watch the show Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am. That was like the classic line. Just the facts. So it's just what is happening. And once there's enough energy of clear seeing, of awareness, we can start to abide in it actually. Then we act. And these energies, all of our mental energies, past, future, etc., they can be, they can work with clear seeing. not opposed to it. And we learn to move from reactivity to response, which is kind of like the mantra, one of the big mantras of the mindfulness movement, right? From reactivity, getting caught and moving out of all these energies to response, to not being a slave to these energies, but being able to use them when they're skillful and not when they're not. So how do we make this happen? It's said that thoughts are often a great sort of servant, these energies, but they're not a great master. So how do we shift that alignment? How do we move our default mode from that to a place of clarity and openness and responsiveness? Well, that's our path. 
And so last night, there was, the foundations were laid. Classically, there's what's called sila or ethics, samadhi, learn to calm and study the mind, and then seeing clearly into experience in a way that we see its nature. So we have a different relationship with it, and we open to this much, this great inner bounty of our hearts and minds and move from the resilience and openness of this place. And so we work on our practice in what's called shamatha vipassana, or calming and steadying and seeing clearly. And in this is the central role of mindfulness, which I want to turn for a few minutes now. When we practice mindfulness, we build momentum of aligning ourselves with what is. And mindfulness is so simple. It's the moment that is prior to our thought about something. Like right now. Can you feel your feet on the ground or touching or feel the air on your skin? Or just see? Or the moment of just feeling an emotion? Those are all mindful moments. It's that, it's that clear moment before we do anything with experience. And so we are aligning ourselves with that. And again, it's not opposed to thought, but it's not thought. And they can work beautifully together, thought and no thought. But one of these has been neglected or untrained. And that's clear present moment awareness. So mindfulness has two simple aspects. One is non-judgmental awareness, okay? So it's not pushing and pulling, right? It's not caught in wanting and not wanting. It's just not caught. It's not caught in not seeing. It's just clear, present, and it's such a relief. Whenever we have that, one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, said, and this is just natural, that everybody has a certain number of moments a day when they're just aware, not pushing and pulling, and that that actually is what keeps most people sane. So it's a natural, <laughs> so we have to have some of it, right? So it's just a natural element of being. And so we're teasing it out. We're learning to wake up where we are, right? That's part of it. And then the second aspect of mindfulness is learning to remember, to come back to that which reminds us that we're here, <laughs> Right? That which calms and steadies our hearts and our minds, our body, our breath, a footstep, our senses. And we're practicing a certain kind of mindfulness here. It's called right mindfulness or samasati. There's mindfulness that's focused when we get a momentum going. And a, a robber a, a robber has a certain kind of focus, right? Or I we have cats. And um, we watch the cats, and they're incredibly focused when they're going to hunt something, okay? And they're actually beautiful to watch in a certain way because they're so focused. They're so mindful and intent on being present. But underlying their their motivation is something that's not based on what, what is special about this mindfulness is it's based in the service of clarity, wisdom, Right, which sees, which opens to a buoyancy of heart and mind and lets go, and compassion. And it said these are the two qualities of, that allow the, the wing, the, there's like a bird, right? Of, and then it's like a Dharma bird. And, and it can only fly when both wings are healthy. And so we need both of these. So our mindfulness, and that's what we come back to cultivating and touching, is of both of these qualities. So all, when we talk of kindness and we do the loving kindness practices, etc. Then we're working with the wing of compassion. And when we just bring clear, bare attention to the present moment, we're working with the wing of, of mindfulness serving wisdom of clear seeing. So how we work is that we, and this is the trajectory of the path, is to grow both of these sides. And in particular, working with mindfulness as clear present moment awareness, just being with things as they are, then we, we work by grounding and steadying in what's simple and easy, the senses, the body, the breath. And then we expand. And sometimes it does, we happens naturally, like we build a base of being in the body. 
So the energies of the heart and the mind, right? Pleasure, discomfort, and then the actual emotions and thoughts, etc. They can be held in a container. But that's sort of the fullness of mindfulness can start to open to all of life. All that makes up our life. Everything. But to train, we keep it simple and grounded and steady. And so over the days and the week, we'll slowly be working with different aspects and opening it up. Okay? The key is to build a momentum of attention. And that's the concentration piece, right? Coming back to what we said for ourselves, non-judgmental is the mindfulness. And then also working with cultivated practices of care, etc. And the concentration takes place, works in two ways. One is getting really intimate with one thing, like a breath, the breath. And you go inside, you get like more one-pointed. There's certain strengths in that quality of, of shamatha or concentration. And then a more open approach, complementary, is the continuity that can move. It's not quite as deep, but it moves between objects. And you can get focused doing that too. And I'm sure both of you have it, you, you, you experience kind of both of these qualities from time to time. They both build the momentum of awareness. And so how we do this is we wake up where we are, right? Making friends with awareness, relaxing into the mo- wake up moments wherever we are. And then we return to what we set for ourselves, to our anchor, to build momentum. We do it with a more fine anchor, right? And then a more open way of, of when we're moving, we have to be a little more comprehensive, don't we? Right? Fuller sense. So last thing I just want to, um, before I end, is to talk a little bit, a couple of helpful attitudes to help us on this path. And I think I'll just leave... Uh, this one is very simple. It's just to be fresh and to start again. So uh, there's Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master, said that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, and in the expert's mind, there are few. Now, we, we take on this project of meditation, and we kind of want to become an expert, and we think it at a certain level. But the beginner's mind, the possibility is the possibility of freshness. It's the possibility of wakefulness just here and now. It's quite beautiful. It's like, and it's an attitude that when we embrace it, it makes life, it makes our practice much more pliable and much more resilient. It's like, you know, weebles? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. It's like that. It's like we go over here, but then there's just, because we're present and we're willing to be fresh and wake up, here we are again, here we are again. And so if we can keep that innocence, there's a humility in that too. If we can keep that alive, then it's very, very helpful. And also to bring it into everything that we do. To not make, so sitting and walking, there's a beautiful complementarity in terms of balance of energies with that. But to bring it into our yogi jobs, to everything that we do, to going to sleep, to waking up, is that we, we build a momentum naturally when we have that freshness and that just turning to what is, relaxing into what is right now, okay? Not, it's, it's the complement to the technique side of it. The Buddha's attendant, Ananda, his cousin too, he tried so hard he couldn't get awake for so many years and kind of had pressure. There was this big council coming up and it was only allowing enlightened people in and he wasn't enlightened. So I guess the story goes the night before the council, he was practicing really hard and then he's like, ah, oh, okay. This is at least the version I read recently of the story. Said, okay, I, I just, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to get it. I'll just relax and, and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I won't make a council and it's all right. And just as he relaxed and he's going to bed, just the naturally, just moving naturally, he woke up. Because there was a momentum of his practice, but then he released the extra. So see if we can just in our practice, really just see what's necessary, but then just soften, okay? And we can wake up anywhere at any time. Life is actually trying to break through. It's very interesting. When we get out of these energies, the wheel, right? We get the tightness of these energies. Life is trying 
to break through. So let's align ourselves with this innate wakefulness that's here, that's here already. Where is it? You look, where is it? You can't taste it, you can't touch it, it doesn't have form. And yet when we practice kindness, when we practice turning to what is, here we are again, and here it is. And that momentum builds. And so the last attitude um, I, I want to say before we end is from, it, it's a wise attitude that comes from the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha went to this town where a lot of spiritual teachers went through and they asked him, why should we listen to you? And he said, don't listen because of any tradition or your elders said you should do it or I'm famous. So don't stand on the past, right? But take these teachings that I'm giving you Take them and test them. And in a way, that's what we're doing in a very condensed form. Test them. Honor the container, right? Really give it your best energy, balanced energy. Test it. And if you find that it's not helpful, it's okay. Move on. But now we have a week, so this is like we're in a lab. <laughs> we are, and it's special conditions. And it's very important that we, that we maintain those. Right? And that we honor those and that we, so we're all in it together. We're all, we're all in this lab together. <laughs> I've got our white coats on. And so we're all doing this together and we test it. And if we don't, at the end, we're like, nah, I made it through. Good, nice stories. I can tell everyone I did a sound retreat. Great. But if, if we find that it's valuable, these simple teachings, then we treat it like gold because it's a very rare gift to to be able to open the heart, to be able to come out from underneath these energies which impose themselves on life and stop us from living in a way that is clear and direct and responsive. So I just, I want to thank you for your, your efforts today, for your good, your good efforts. And so continue with the effort, but also relax back into the momentum that builds when we just live life just moment by moment by moment. Um, and I want to end with this quote from Basho, who said, uh, a famous Zen poet, he said, go to the pine if you want to learn about the pine, or the bamboo if you want to learn about the bamboo. And in doing so, you must leave your subjective preoccupation with yourself. Otherwise, you impose yourself on the object and you do not learn. So if you want to go to the pine, go to the, this is for artists, right? <laughs> he was an artist and a poet. Uh, he was a poet, actually. The bamboo, if you want to learn about the bamboo. So go to your life. Go to the moment if you want to learn about your life in the moment. Go right to the moment, right? And it's right here. You don't have to go anywhere. When we do walking, we're not trying to go from A to B. We're going from A to A. It's, all, it's, it's an incredible certain way luxury. We have this freedom all week. All we have to do is go from A to A. All we have to, we're learning about living, the art of mindful living in the present moment. So we move from now to now. If you want to learn about now, go to now. <laughs> and this is the important point. And in doing so, you must leave your preoccupation with yourself. And so that's, it actually doesn't say that none of these energies that I've been speaking of, like the energies of, it doesn't mean that they have to, they're natural parts of our minds and our hearts until perhaps they become uprooted if we see clearly enough, deeply enough over time, right? And they don't have quite as much, they're, they're not as strong. But they're actually, they can be seen too. So mindfulness holds everything. But we have to get out of the way of their allure, which keeps us thinking and separate from experience, right? You must leave your preoccupation with yourself. And that's all these energies clustered that we just call it self, ego, whatever you want to call it. Fine, it's just terms, right? We have to leave this preoccupation. Otherwise, we impose ourselves on each moment and we actually don't learn. And so this is the gift. We have the gift of learning here. We have this incredible environment. So... Let's embrace it, okay? Let's embrace this, can we learn?
can we learn with the skill of the technique, with the beautiful surround of the environment and the silent support of each other? Can we open to that possibility of actually getting out of our own preoccupations and dropping deep into the heart of the moment again and again? So please keep the practice this simple and let's sit for a moment. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I went a bit over, thank you for your patience. So if the bell ringer would just, um, we'll, just we'll just take about a, a 10 minute a, a short walking. So if, if the bell ringer, actually make it 15 minutes, so if the bell ringer could ring the bell in a, at about 10 minutes, so just go for a short walking outside. Okay, or wherever you'd like, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.